Uh, we're continuing our series called True Satisfaction for the Hunger Inside of You. And the reason why we're going to Ecclesiastes today is if we're going to hunger and thirst for that which satisfies us, we want to also look at what doesn't satisfy us. We're not to spend our time and our energy. And Ecclesiastes, once we uh, look at who the author is, really raises the question, how did this go so bad? When you look at it, uh, we see a tragic, empty sadness of trying to satisfy the wrong hungers. But before we look at that and the person who wrote that and about their life, uh, let's talk about satisfaction. Satisfaction as a definition is uh, fulfilled desires or fulfilled expectations. Satisfaction also speaks to us of a sense of gratification or contentment that, ah, I need nothing else. And the Bible is all about satisfaction, Old Testament and New. Our theme verse taken from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Would you say hunger and thirst? For they shall be satisfied. There's that satisfaction soul deep. Jump back to the Old Testament, Psalm 107, verse 9. David wrote, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Sounds like what Jesus said as far as our hunger and our thirst. Proverbs 19, verse 22 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. And so we see again, satisfaction, satisfaction. And all of us long for that, that sense of well-being, that sense of contentment that goes soul deep. But many of us don't have that. And so let's look at one person who should have had satisfaction, should have been just, yes, but they weren't. And let's listen to an expert on what doesn't satisfy. Second point, you can follow along on this, this outline if you go to the CLC app. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 1, starts out this way. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And that king in Jerusalem, the son of David, is Solomon. He writes this book. He's written a great deal of wisdom literature, uh, books beyond what's in the scripture, but also he wrote the book of Proverbs, the book of the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And this is written about 935 B.C., so over 900 years before Christ walked the earth. And as we look at the story of Solomon, let me take you away from Ecclesiastes for a moment and read some verses that aren't on the screen just describing his life. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, it says, So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. You read that again. Greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. He was crazy rich. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift. So on top of elsewhere in Scripture, and they did the math for modern day, beyond the $3 billion a year he collected in revenue from his, his kingdom, they also, every man brought his gift that would come to see him, articles of silver, gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 that the queen of Sheba had heard how phenomenal Solomon and his wealth was. She had to come and visit him and see it for herself. And it says when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house which he had built, she was breathless. 
Verse 5, then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe their reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of the greatness of your kingdom and your wisdom was not told to me. You surpass the report that I heard. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it's not just possessions, it's not just wisdom and power, uh, but he also indulged in verse 1. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite women, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And it says in verse 2, Solomon held fast to these in love. And verse 3 boggles one's mind. It says he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. So he has 1,000 women in his harem. Solomon had it all, you might imagine. And yet the ironic thing, the, the puzzling thing, the sad thing is that after verse 1, he introduces himself as he's the king. He is that king I just described. And this is written at the end of his life. Verse 2, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All this that I have, all my wealth, all my fame, all the wisdom, the possessions, the power, the influence, the wives. It's worthless. I'm empty. Satisfaction? No. And when you look at it, you go through the book of Ecclesiastes and it's, it's one example after another. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And when a king like Solomon says, I'm going to enjoy myself, you can be sure he enjoyed himself. Deprived him of no pleasure that he desired. And he said, behold, this too was futility. In verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? Other verses uh, in our versions of the Bible interpret that as I said of frivolous fun and of sport. It's, it's madness. It's, it's worthless. It doesn't satisfy and in verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I thought stimulants would do it, artificial stimulus and, and stimulants and wine, perhaps even drugs of some sort, and that didn't satisfy, he says. And then in verse 4, he says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. Who makes a park for themselves? This guy's got everything. I planted them all kinds of fruit trees and made ponds for water. Verse 9, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. Catch this. And this was my reward for all my labor. That sounds like a statement I made last week, that our culture basically says, here it is, have it, and when you have it, have more. And then Solomon justifies himself, I deserved it. It was a reward for my labor. I had it coming to me. I've worked hard. It's mine. It's a lot like our culture. How much do you want? More. More. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And go ahead and have it, and have it now. Solomon was the epitome of that. I want it. I want more. I want now. And he found that satisfaction still wasn't there. How much is enough? Evidently, more. 
He talks about wealth. He talks about money in chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. In chapter 12, he talks about education, that, that you can wear yourself with lots of books and it still is vanity of vanities. He talks about wisdom. It's still futility. He talks about sexual pleasure. It is futility. Over and over and over again, you, you listen to this man at the end of his prosperous, successful, abundant life, and he's empty. He's got empty soul hunger, if you will. He's not empty in, in his, his balance sheet. He isn't empty in, in what he possesses, but he's empty in here. And you can see it in chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. And you get the impression when you read that, he's basically coming to the end of his life. He sees all that he has amassed to himself. He says, you know what? It's vanity. It's, it's worthless. It's futile because this is going to pass along to somebody else. I can't even control it. Now, this is no guesswork here. He knows who it's going to go to. In those days, kingdoms passed from father to son. And he knows that his son Rehoboam is next in line. And evidently, Rehoboam was, was a shoulder shrug. <laughs> you know Rehoboam. And everything I've worked for in all this kingdom and the golden age of Israel is not going to be in his hands. And those are not good hands to be in. And surely when you read the history, when the kingdom went to Rehoboam, it lasted a matter of weeks and it blew apart. And so he sees the futility of trying to leave a legacy and, and there's no guarantee the legacy goes well. You see in chapter 4, verse 2, depression shows he says, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Solomon is no exception to many others in Scripture who, who experience some of the worst of emotions. You and I have been depressed We've had a lot of those same struggles. In fact, that's why next, next month in February, we're going to do a series on mental and emotional health. And Solomon, you would have thought that, boy, if, if things and money could buy well-being, he'd have had, had it overflowing, but he didn't. And then, you ever been around somebody who is really in a bad mood and their bad mood leaks by what they say? Or maybe you are overwhelmed and, and you, what you say kind of leaks? I read through this, there's only 12 chapters in the book, and I read through it and prepped for this message. And when I got to chapter 9, verse 9, I literally chuckled to myself out loud. I thought, boy, buddy, you got a bad, you got a bad attitude. Listen to what he says in, in Ecclesiastes 9, 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting, vain, worthless life. <laughs> really, tell me how you feel. <laughs> He's empty. And, and when our expectations are here and our experience is here, when you have it all and you don't have anything, boy, those feelings start to stir and you can see why the anger was there. Because I did all of this and for this. And, and it appears the fourth point is a crucial one. Chasing the wrong hunger changes you. And sadly, you don't realize you're changing. Maybe you do at the very end. 
And so it's a bit of a warning to us now. Ask yourself the question, what are the hungers that I'm chasing? And are they changing me? Because here you have this bitter, phenomenally successful, wealthy, everything you want, ruler, powerful person, empty, angry, frustrated, no satisfaction. But that's not how he started. Most messes don't start that way. Most disappointments and failures don't start that way. When you, when you look at, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. It's an inspiring book. This one is sad. This one inspires us by way of caution. Well, don't go that way. But he wrote Proverbs, and I've often said, if you struggle with how to get your devotional life going, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Pick the day of the month, if it's the 21st, 20th, whatever. But read chapter 20, you'll get something out of it. Here are the things that, that Solomon wrote. Solomon, well, let's go to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Yes. You go to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. This verse really jumped off the page of me when I was a teenager doing devotions and I was reading the Living Bible. And I've never forgotten it. It says, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. The Living Bible says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And all you're getting, get understanding. And Solomon did that. He had a hunger for wisdom and righteousness for so much of his life. And he wrote, chapter 30, verse 7, two things I have asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or I not, may not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Solomon wrote most of Proverbs, and you get to the end of the book that he pretty well penned, and, and it says, I, I ask you for two things. Help me to walk in truth and give me just enough. Not too much that I become self-sufficient and I'm no longer thankful and I deny you, and not too little that I resort to stealing and disobey your word. How did that guy become this guy? When he started out, when he received the kingdom, God appears to him in a dream, says, ask anything you want. And what does Solomon ask for? Give me wisdom that I could lead your people in righteousness. And God is so blown away by that humble request that he says, I'm going to give you that and more. How did that guy end up filthy rich, a thousand wives, disgruntled, frustrated, angry, and empty. He didn't set out for that. You read it. I mean, you can read his life through what he wrote in Proverbs. He didn't start out that way. But somehow, chasing the wrong hungers changes you. And if you understand Old Testament history, it's just mind-boggling. Let me take you back about 500 years before Solomon was king to the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Because in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is written to the, this new nation of Israel. As they are leaving slavery, they were slaves for four centuries in the nation of Egypt. 
and they've been miraculously delivered from slavery through Moses, and they're traveling through the wilderness to make their way to the promised land to Israel. And during that traveling time, they got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and God elaborated his laws for, for how to live, how to treat each other, and how to honor and worship God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, let me pause there to say God's intention when they left Egypt was it would be what's called a theocracy. Basically, God is king. He'd be their king. He appointed judges. In fact, shortly after this, there's a book called Judges. He appointed judges. They would administer the law of God in everyday life, life, the life of the people, and then they would, you know, God would be their, their authority. That was his plan, a theocracy. But it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, which is exactly what ended up happening. He says, your king shall not, verse 16, multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It's as though Solomon sometime found Deuteronomy 17 and took that and said, I'm going to make the opposite of that my job description and my marching orders for life. A thousand wives. And they were wives not from his own country, so they worshiped other gods. And the Bible says that, that Solomon's heart was turned away. He became so rich that the riches became his focus. And, and when it comes to the horses and whatnot, uh, he, was, he was an arms trader, basically. And Egypt was kind of like the place that produced all these horses for warfare. He had chariots, he had horses, he did horse trading with that. He did everything that God said, make sure your king doesn't do that. But the caution to us is he didn't start out that way. I was telling our team after service on Saturday night, we meet together and we kind of critique everything to make sure everything's in order for today. And most of our team is like half my age or less. And I told them, to those of you that are, understand that life is as simple as it's going to be now. Most of us are single. You're not married. You don't have any relationships, family. I remember when I was that age, and I was still single, and everything I owned when I graduated college fit the back of a station wagon. It's easy to sing those songs, you know, I surrender all. I'll go where you want me to go because I ain't got nothing to surrender. It's just yours. I told him, as life adds to you and gets more complicated, do your best to keep your heart pure because Solomon didn't start out to be bitter old Solomon. And be careful that you enjoy the blessings. I like temporal blessings as much as anybody else does. But don't hit that switching point where you are pursuing the blessings rather than the one who blesses you. Somewhere for Solomon that happened. Somewhere for Solomon, the focus went from inside to outside and externally, you'll never have enough to be satisfied. He does land the book well. It all comes back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. And he says in that passage, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Bottom line. 
Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where he said, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And when it comes to satisfaction, next weekend we're going to unpack, okay, how do I get that soul satisfaction? What do I do? All right, what do I practically do in my life? But one thing that Solomon needed to have done, and I remember Dirk and I were talking about this. You don't have to go back to the Bible times. Just about seven years ago, he and I were in Zambia, and we were with uh, Pastor Wafuka, one of our partners. And we were driving through rural Zambia, kind of wide open plains, and horrible roads, uh, unpaved, bumpy. You know, you could put a car in some of the potholes. And we're just bouncing along, bouncing along in this beat-up old pickup truck. And Wafuka made a statement. He wasn't trying to preach to us. He wasn't trying to get this insight, guys. He just simply made a statement. We're driving along. People are living in stick-and-mud huts on less than $2 a day. And he simply made the statement, enough is a choice. Enough is a choice. That's what a, a fast is supposed to do for us. I'll, I choose that what I have now is enough. That's supposed to extrapolate to every area of life that we know, when do I have enough? Well, when I choose that it's enough. Because otherwise our culture will keep bombarding and say, you know when's enough? Just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Somewhere Solomon fell for that and he never was satisfied. And so that satisfaction, one of the things we can do in this, this series and this time together is begin to choose to simply be thankful for what you have. And if that's all you have, that that can be enough. We'll do a deeper dive into that next weekend. But I'd like to take just a moment. I have one more point in the message, and it's going to go a very different direction uh, and a closing song and prayer. But before we do, I'd like to take just a moment and kind of ask you to do some introspection. And it's appropriate during a time of prayer and fasting. Uh, it's sort of depriving our appetites, choosing what's enough. It's praying. And when we're hungry, when we want things, that's been meant to be a reminder to pray. But it's also listening. So for just a moment, would you bow your head with me and maybe do a comparison to Solomon's tragic end. None of us are at the end. And so would you just maybe whisper a prayer, Lord? Speak to me about my appetites. Speak to me about the hungers that I'm chasing. Highlight the ones that please you. Show me the ones that have gotten out of line. And take me in the path of real contentment and satisfaction. Take a moment and just whisper that kind of prayer and let him speak to you. Mm. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. 
We're thankful for the hope of heaven and we're thankful for all the blessings that you bestow upon us in this life, both tangible and intangible. It's tragic when we look at Solomon's life. The only way he's remembered in the New Testament is for his wealthy splendor. Our prayer is that people, when they remember us, remember far beyond our stuff and our things. But the quality of life that we live from the inside out and the way we were a blessing to them. And yet we live in a world that way beyond anything Solomon's day ever brought has entire industries of marketing and branding that are dedicated to making us discontent and challenging and enticing us to chase after things that may be nice to have, but they'll never fully satisfy us. And so those places in which we're chasing the wrong hungers, Lord, make us aware of that. And for that emptiness of soul, I pray that you would teach us how to turn to you and to be satisfied. We trust you for that. We look forward to that in the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we want to close our service. It is uh, Sanctity of Life weekend. And we live in now, at least for the time being, a post-Roe versus Wade society. I wonder how many of you are under 50? Would you raise your hand? Okay, that's been the majority every service. You live in a world and a perspective different than I have. I remember I was, I think, a junior in high school when the Supreme Court made a decision legalizing abortion. At the time, we understood it as taking a human life. And so those of us that are pre-Roe versus Wade are thrilled at the idea that our Supreme Court has not made that a protected right. If you're young, if you're 50 and under, you don't understand all the confusion, all the chaos, all the, all the debate and why a Supreme Court would do that. And if you have missed the times I've preached about, I try to do it frequently enough. We try to encourage a biblical worldview. That's what being a Christ follower is. And the Bible clearly teaches us that, as I quoted earlier in the dedication, children are a gift from the Lord. And a biblical worldview, and I asked Dirk yesterday, hey, add one more point to the message. Point six, if you go on the app, simply says life. And if this doesn't, it's not clear to you, there are a few references there that will show you how a biblical worldview assumes that an unborn child is alive. It's a life. In fact, they are physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They are a physical, emotional, and spiritual being in a mother's womb. And so those verses will help to explain that. And so we celebrate the fact that our nation is now saying, no, it's not just a constitutional right because it's taking a life. And we are glad that we partner with organizations, ministries that are out in the lobby to help women that are at that crisis point of decision. And it won't mean that there are less crisis decisions. There are more. And so we are helping them to equip themselves to, to do more of a job in helping women decide the path to go with that child they didn't expect. I want to pray a very important prayer for each of us here and for our church moving forward. A friend of mine mentioned to me this week, he said, I keep meaning to tell you this every Sanctity of Life weekend. To remember that it's 
that woman impacted, that child's life lost, but more than that. He told me a story how years ago, before he was a Christian, he was living with a woman and she got pregnant and they both decided that wasn't part of their plans. So, so he said, I drove her to the clinic and I, I waited in the car in the parking lot. There were protesters, anti-abortion protesters in the parking lot. She came out after about an hour. She cried. She cried the whole next day. We broke up shortly after that. So I became a Christian, and I received God's forgiveness, but it's a scar that I live with. And just make sure you mention that it's more than even that child's life and that mother, but the guy in the parking lot, other family or loved ones who are impacted by abortion. And I began to think, you know, if you're here today and you've experienced that, but you haven't accepted Christ, Jesus would say you need to be born again, the physical term for that. And it's a new life, and it's a life that you can walk in forgiveness and grace. If you experience that as a believer, we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Jesus is into forgiveness and grace, not condemnation and guilt. He said, yeah, but can you forgive something like that? Yes, that's how big the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary was. So let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. The Bible tells us when you created mankind, you fashioned man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him, and man became a living being, and that breath of life is such a gift. The Bible tells us that we were fearfully and wonderfully made when you formed us in our mother's womb, and so we thank you for that life renewing each of us an appreciation for every day as a gift from you. Lord, we pray for those whose lives have been impacted and damaged and wounded by abortion. We thank you that you are a God of forgiveness and grace. And Lord, let them receive that as they ask for it. You're also a God of healing. And so we pray that you will heal the wounds that, that abortion leaves behind in all those impacted and involved and help us to release it to you into the past and to walk forward in freedom and forgiveness. And help us as a church to be a loving community to those who, who struggle and have struggled with this and have tried to live with it. Help us not only with our ministry partners across our city, but here at Christian Life Center to be a loving, caring place. And we pray for our nation. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin's a disgrace to any people. We thank you for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and we pray that you would continue our nation uh, on a path of righteousness in that regard, and in all regards, Lord, that there be a revival of your spirit in this land, and let it start with us. So I pray a blessing on each person here today. Be with us. I pray for safety as we travel, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to remain and just reflect for a while, the, the, there'll be some music playing and the lights are here. We'll have prayer team members down front if you need prayer or in the VIP room. If you visit, stop by the VIP room as you leave today. God bless you. Thanks for being here.